We, uh, as a family, celebrated Christmas a few, almost a week early because uh, that was when we could all get together. And my little grandson ran into the house and greeted me with, Merry Fake Christmas. <laughs> and then this morning in the first service, Ryan greeted everybody with, Merry Day After Christmas. And Brother Santiago greets us with Feliz Navidad. So however we say it, whenever we say it, it is a joy to be celebrating the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation of our God, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think even for many who may find this a difficult time to be merry because of the context of life and perhaps the loss of loved ones this last year, it's still a time that we can find his joy. And perhaps particularly in such a time, be comforted by the promise that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to start by reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. Matthew 2, 1 to 15. And you will know this story if the reference doesn't tip you off. And let's stand together as I read this. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 15. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, and are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken of what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then one more verse, not typically connected with this story, but it's where I'm going to begin this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we would ask this morning that you would lead us and guide us that your spirit would teach from your word. We would ask, Father, that we would behold Christ, and in beholding his glory, we would be transformed into the same glory, so that our lives might reflect that glory, and the world might know Emmanuel, God with us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. 
Well, this morning I want to begin with some reflections on what it means to be poor in spirit. And then after we've meditated on that a little bit, then go to the story of the Magi and see the way in which their lives reflected, demonstrated a bit of what it means to be poor in spirit. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what exactly does Jesus mean by that? What does he mean by poor in spirit? So we want to step back and we want to look. And the first thing that we observe is that the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, is the first of the Beatitudes found in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are not commandments. We are not commanded to be poor in spirit. We are not commanded to mourn. We are not commanded to be gentle or to be meek. They're not commandments. We also observe that the Beatitudes are not virtues to be cultivated for the purpose of being blessed. And often we think of them that way, but that is simply reword, that's simply a rewording of works righteousness. If somehow I can just be poor in spirit, or if I can mourn, or if I can, can be meek and gentle, if I can hunger and thirst for righteousness in just the right way, then God will bless me. If I can do the right works, then God will bless me. Sometimes we look at the Beatitudes in that way, but that's not what they are. Brothers and sisters, the blessing of our salvation, all of the blessings of our salvation are of grace. Grace wasn't just for the day that we came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's for every day we walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by grace. We don't begin by faith to get saved and then convert over to works to get blessed. And that's not what the, the Beatitudes are trying to teach us. That's not what Jesus is teaching in the Beatitudes. They are not virtues to be pursued so that we may be blessed. The Beatitudes speak of what kind of person is blessed. What kind of person is blessed? The Beatitudes are a picture of the heart that God blesses. It is the heart that God is creating within every one of his disciples. Hallelujah. It's about the heart. In fact, that's the primary thrust of what Jesus is talking about in the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's about the heart. We see this because I think the, the key verse, the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And what was it in the, in the, in the scribes and the Pharisees, <clears throat> what was it in their righteousness that was not pleasing to Jesus Christ that we must live beyond? And if we would understand the Sermon on the Mount, we must get an answer to that question. Otherwise, the Sermon on the Mount just seems to become like a book of Proverbs, a series of commands and a series of statements. But there is something that weaves it together. And it's the answer to this question, which Jesus doesn't actually directly answer in the sermon. But he does directly answer it in Matthew 15. He tells us exactly what is the wrong with the righteousness of the Pharisees in Matthew 15. Now, the Pharisees are criticizing the disciples and Jesus because they haven't correctly washed their hands before they ate. And so we're, I'm just going to track the core answer of what Jesus, how he responds to that accusation, what he says. He's, there's a great deal in the passage. We're not going to cover it all. But in Matthew 15, 7, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do you worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. Then in verse 17, he says, going on talking with his disciples, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But, in verse 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those are the things that defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. Now the interesting thing is, if you take that list of sins he just, he just uh, gives there, you could take that back to Matthew 6 and Matthew 7 and see that Jesus is talking precisely about those things that come out of the heart. The, gospel, the, the Sermon on the Mount is about the heart. And so when we talk about the Beatitudes, we're talking about the heart that is pleasing, that offers pleasing worship to God. It's not so much about what, uh, it's, it's not so much about what the disciple of Christ is to do as it is about who the disciple of Christ is. Now think about that, because we, in our tradition, can stumble over this truth. It's not so much about what the disciples of Christ are doing, it's about who the disciples of Christ are, who the disciple of Christ is. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Behavior and obedience is extremely important. Behavior is the fruit. Obedience is the fruit. The heart is the root. The Beatitudes are about the root. What kind of heart, what kind of person is blessed in the kingdom? And the Beatitudes describe the heart of the blessed person. And who is the most blessed person in the kingdom? Jesus Christ. Jesus did not temporarily become a man and then shed his humanity when he went back to heaven. He is still 100% God and 100% man, and he will be for all of eternity. When we worship, when we celebrate the incarnation, we're not just celebrating something that took place for 30 years, 33 years. We're celebrating that God himself in the form of Jesus Christ took on flesh and will wear that flesh. Not wear it, he will be man for eternity. 100% man and 100% God. And that's why John would write in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared yet as to what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now, John is not speaking about the deity of Jesus Christ here. We will not be gods ever. He's talking about the humanity of Jesus Christ. And we will be like him. Hallelujah. So the Beatitudes are a description of Jesus himself. When we become more like him, the Beatitudes will increasingly be descriptive of our lives. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, then it creates a challenge for us the way we generally understand poor in spirit. Our first inclination is to define this term, this poor in spirit, in terms of our sin, in terms of our moral bankruptcy. And if the meaning of poor in spirit is primarily moral bankruptcy, then every single human on the whole planet is blessed. Because every single human on the entire planet is morally bankrupt. 
So when we speak of the poor in spirit as primarily, primarily as our moral bankruptcy, we usually insert something into the verse. We insert the word knowing or know. We read it this way, blessed are those who know they are poor in spirit, who acknowledge they are poor in spirit. There are, in fact, translations of the Bible, I don't know if someone has it here, who actually have that in your Bible. That is not in the Greek. That's not what Jesus said. Now, such an understanding of poor in spirit certainly is in keeping with what the Scriptures teach in other passages. It is not unbiblical to talk about the need to acknowledge our moral bankruptcy and, and confess that and repent of it. That is biblical. But here's my struggle. That's not what Jesus said. And am I bringing other truth into the scripture that is not the truth that Jesus is talking about? At least not the core of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, period. He certainly could have said, blessed are those who know they are poor in spirit, but he didn't. And I believe that Jesus, being the best teacher that ever walked on the planet, would have chosen his words well. Now, just incidentally, you need to know how humbling it is for anyone to try to explain the words of the best preacher, that ever, the best teacher that ever walked on the planet. There are times I think the congregation would be far better served if I just read what he said. So it's my opinion that Jesus is precise in his wording. So how can moral bankruptcy be the, the essential meaning of the phrase? And if that is the essential meaning of the, praise, of the phrase, how was Jesus poor in spirit? Is, is, that a, is that a beatitude that doesn't apply to him? Because he was sinless. He was not ever morally bankrupt. Even when he was on the cross and bore our sins, he was sinless. He bore our debt, but he was not morally bankrupt. I would suggest that for us, poor in spirit does and must include the idea of our moral bankruptcy. That's true. I don't deny that. That is, but I don't believe it is the core of what Jesus is talking about. It's a very important part of our understanding of the phrase, but moral poverty is not the essential meaning of the phrase. It's not the first thing that Jesus wants us to know. Jesus is primarily getting at something else, and I think the essential meaning of the phrase is more God-centered than man-centered. I believe it describes the way we are before God. I believe the core to understanding poor in spirit must be the concept of essential dependence on God. I think core to understanding poor in spirit means the essential dependence on God. And, and maybe a way to illustrate that uh, would be by way of... Uh, my dependence on oxygen, and I think yours too. I am by nature oxygen dependent. It's not something I ever mold over. I never considered, should I depend on oxygen or hydrogen? You know, I just, oxygen is what I need. And, and, and this is my physical poverty. I am poor in my body in that I have a, I have a, I have a constant, essential need for something outside of myself. And if I don't get it, I will die. I have no life apart from oxygen. From my first cry after birth to the last gasp of, of air before Jesus gloriously takes me home, I am oxygen dependent. 
far as I can tell, I will no longer be oxygen dependent after that point, but until then I am. Now, I seldom think about this. I just, I just breathe. Now, there are some people that must think about it. For some people, this is an, a, a constant something that they are aware of because of a need for oxygen that they can't provide through the normal processes, and they need assistance. But I seldom think about it. When I do think about it, it's like when I was younger and I used to try to see how far I could swim underwater with one breath. And no matter how far I went, I discovered that when I came up, it was always <sighs> life. Or if I'd been doing it for a while, it was <sighs> you know, and when I run, it used to be I could run quite a ways before I started going <sighs> Now it's about three or four feet. I apparently am growing more oxygen dependent. Uh, but that's, that's, that's a description. I am because of who I am. It's what I am by nature. I didn't decide this. I am oxygen dependent. And I cannot not be dependent on oxygen. Likewise, those who are poor in spirit are those who are growing in their constant dependence on God. Not so much as an act of obedience, but as an act of nature. It's a transformed heart that is increasingly dependent on the presence of God. This is what we call sanctification. Sanctification is not the transformation of our behavior. It results in that. But, 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 uh, but our sanctification is the transformation of our hearts and then out of a transformed heart comes changed behaviors. Jesus, as 100% man, yet sinless, was constantly dependent on God. He didn't need to be sanctified. He was already fully sanctified. But he would say things like, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. There was no distance between the purposes of the Father and the life of the Father and the purposes of the Son and the life of the Son. He lived fully dependent. So even in his greatest crisis of his human life, Jesus cried out from the depth of his very nature, not my will, but thine. He didn't have to decide to do that. It was who he was. In his humanity, he was essentially dependent on God. He was poor in spirit. He had no capacity to live apart from the Father. And we hear echoes of this in the words of, of Paul. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, yet it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm essentially connected to God. And I have no life other than that. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is coming from God. From God. That essential relationship. So the core to understanding poor in spirit is the concept of essential dependence on God. It is out of this essential dependence in our being that outward obedience flows. So Jesus would say in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, obedience wasn't first. Love was first. I love God, therefore I obey him. I love Jesus, therefore I'll obey him. Now, if I'm not obeying Jesus, it reflects a broken heart. It reflects a heart that is not loving him. Jesus says, if you love me, if our heart is right toward him, we will keep his commandments. That's the way in which our righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. 
The life of the disciple is not first a life of outward obedience. The life of the disciple is first and foremost the formation of Christ in us. This is what Christ is after on the Sermon on the Mount. On Sermon on the Mount, heart change that leads to life change, not outward conformity that masks inward deformity. He's looking for heart change. And one of the evidences of that heart change is poor in spirit. So if it is not first and foremost about outward obedience, but our heart transformation, what part do we play in the process? If we're not achieving this transformation by our own works, are we simply passive? I'm glad you asked that question. That brings us back to our story with the Magi. And let me begin by saying that there is, in fact, a great deal of hard work on our part involved in this transformation. And as one author wisely said, Grace is not opposed to working. It is opposed to earning. Let me say that again. Grace is not opposed to working. It is opposed to earning. All of our works toward Christ-likeness is a response. All of our work is a response to his favor, to his love, to his blessing and not an effort to gain his favor and to gain his love. It's another Christmas story. The tale of the poor Magi, the rich king, and the indifferent priests. Matthew 2, 1 to 15, we've already read through here. I'll just walk through it again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Uh, These magi, they're a mystery. We have no idea who they are. No one really knows. The name originally was applied to the wise men in Babylon. As far as we can tell, that was the first application of the word. So Daniel in the Old Testament probably was classified among the magi of Babylon. And so because that's true, there are some who believe, and it could be, that it was because of Daniel's teaching of that class of people in Babylon that that teaching became part of of their curriculum, so to speak, and was passed down, and eventually these magi learned it. That is possible. We don't know because by the time that Jesus arrived, the name magi had generally been applied across most of the nations of the known world at the time. It just described among all the peoples Uh, a cast of wise men specializing in astronomy, astrology, and natural sciences. They may or may not have had any influence from Daniel. We don't know. But they had some influence from from the, the religion of the Jews and very likely had been exposed to some portion of Scripture because, for instance, Numbers 24, 17, we read, I see him, but, do not, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheph. So it's, it's possible that these men were familiar with this verse or others like it, but in some way, what we do, in some way, God made this evident to them. What we do know is that they were Gentiles. They were not part of God's covenant people. And while they may have been tolerated by the Jews, they would have been despised by them. A practicing Jew would not have even sat down to a meal with these guys. If they had wanted to worship God in the temple, they would have had to stay out in the outer courts. They would have stayed in what was called the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't have entered deep into the temple area because they were Gentiles. They may have had wealth, but they were considered religiously outcast. They were considered spiritually poor. 
In fact, in the years later, Jesus would describe such people as poor in spirit, but not because they were Gentiles. He would describe them as poor in spirit, describe people like them as poor in spirit because of their heart response to God. And Jesus was likely born about two years earlier, roughly. We know that based on the people that uh, Herod decreed should be killed. He wanted to make sure that he got Jesus. He got this new king. So he said everybody under two years of age. So Jesus probably was in, in that group. <clears throat> he was no longer in the stable. I know we love the, the manger scenes with the shepherds here and the wise men here, but they weren't. <laughs> they showed up later after the Shepherds left, and Mary and Joseph and Jesus had moved into a house somewhere. And then these men come. On the night of his birth, the angels had announced to the shepherds, and the shepherds had told everyone that would listen to them that the Messiah had come and he was sleeping in that stable. Anybody could have gone and seen him or followed that family. A few days later, Simeon and Anna in the temple. And Anna especially, Simeon speaks a prophecy to the family, but it, we're told that Anna tells everyone who's hoping and waiting for the consolation, they, she tells them, he's here, the Messiah is here, he's come, he's right over there. And here we are within a couple of years of the birth, and they're alone in the house. Nobody has come to see them. except these Gentile magi. Somehow, as they studied the heavens, God spoke to their hearts, and they responded. They came seeking, and this is one of the marks of someone who is poor in spirit. This is an outward evidence of an inter internal heart condition. It is one of the it is part of the fruit that grows from the root of a heart that pleases God. When God reveals himself, the one who is poor in spirit responds. One who is poor in spirit seeks God where he may be found. Just as a man deprived of air sucks in all the oxygen he can. Life. found him, God. Life to the one essentially dependent on God. And the response of the poor in spirit is always, we seek him. To the man or woman who has never known Christ as Savior, God says, come. Or perhaps there are some of you in this room today who have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, never seen a need for that. And God himself is saying to you today, come for life. And you can come and know his life. To the disciple of Christ who has become very busy, very distracted, very overburdened, very distressed and worried, God says, come. Come, and the word and the one desperate for life comes. Life. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is not simply an invitation to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is an invitation to every disciple of Jesus Christ every day to come. Come. And I will give you rest. And all the poor in spirit come because we are by nature essentially dependent on him. 
So the Magi, those poor in spirit Gentiles, come seeking the king of the Jews that they might worship him. Again in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes and the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of the people. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child and Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I, I can't help but wonder how many people wandering around Bethlehem on their way to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. How many and how often had they walked right by God? Right by Emmanuel, God with us, on their way up to the temple so that they might offer their spiritual worship, perform their religious acts to God. Now these magi, the ones not allowed to enter the temple, now they bow before God in flesh, Messiah, Jesus. They see God when others don't. And this is another mark of the poor in spirit, another fruit of those who are poor in spirit. When one is dependent on oxygen, you know when oxygen is present, and you really know it when oxygen is not present. Your life depends on it. So the one who is poor in spirit knows the presence of God, recognizes the dependence, the, one, the presence of the one upon whom they fully depend. And when they draw near to God, they worship. And for the Magi, this was costly worship. As they presented their gifts, these gifts were so precious that in the early tradition of the church, the Magi, one of the reasons that the Magi began to be referred to as kings was the gifts were gifts fitting to be given from a king, not simply to a king, but from a king. They were extravagant gifts. And so early in church history, they began to be called the kings. And we even sing, we three kings of Orient are. So they were that, their gifts were that extravagant. Could they afford such extravagance? We don't know. We, we don't know how that represented their total wealth, but we know that they sacrificed as an act of worship. And the poor in spirit are, but for the poor in spirit, what is such extravagant worship. And the poor in spirit are not dependent on wealth. They're not dependent on how other people accept them or reject them. The poor in spirit are not dependent on the things of this world because they are dependent, essentially dependent on only one thing, one person, and that's God. And so the poor in spirit can lose all of that the poor in spirit can lose wealth, health, friendships. The poor in spirit can lose all of that and not essentially lose anything because the only essential thing is Jesus Christ. I believe there are times in our lives that we are filled with grief over the loss of 
a loved one, loss of a circumstance, loss of something that we treasured. And that grief is not a bad thing, but I believe that in that, those times, the God who loves us is gently reaching into our lives and he's removing from us those things that we think are essential so that we might be reminded that only he is essential. The disciple of Christ who is poor in spirit can lose everything and still rejoice because we have not lost anything essential. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left their own country by another way. And when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night, and they left for Egypt. Now, a couple of quick contrasts in this passage related to poor in spirit. Those who perhaps are not poor in spirit. See, like the Magi, Herod was seeking Jesus. But he didn't seek Jesus to worship him, did he? Herod was seeking Jesus to kill him. Not all who claim to seek Jesus are poor in spirit. There are people who seek Jesus not to worship him, but to use him for their own benefit. There was a time in our own country that being a member of a church uh, was considered a good thing in the community, and it would raise your status in the community if you were a member of the right church. And so people who didn't really seek Jesus, they sought position and honor would seek to be part of the church. That's not so much today, is it? And I don't think that's such a bad thing. We don't really want to draw people to the church who are seeking something for themselves instead of seeking Jesus. We live in a time of Christian celebrity. And there are very talented people who are seeking Jesus not because they love Jesus, but because they can be famous preachers, they can be famous musicians, they can be famous Christian entertainers, they can be famous Christian authors. Now, being well-known and being accepted as a Christian preacher, musician, author, those are not in themselves indications of someone who's not poor in spirit, and I would not suggest that at all. But I would suggest that there is great benefit to seeking Jesus and behaving in religious ways, great personal benefit for those behaviors. And where those personal benefits are available, it's very dangerous. So pray for those whom you may know that have some celebrity Pray that God will protect them from seeking, keep them from seeking celebrity and keep them seeking Jesus. And I would ask you to pray that even for our pastor, Pastor Brett. I don't see that in him at all. But I just know that a pastor of a church this size who is preaching and teaching as Pastor Brett does, that will be a temptation. So pray for him that he will continue to seek Jesus. And seek Jesus for what purpose? Well, to worship him. But I also want to mention that perhaps it's, it comes very close to home in terms of seeking Jesus for personal benefit when we think of the fact maybe we ourselves are going, you know, I have... I have plans, maybe it's for school, maybe it's from a family, maybe it's a, a spouse or children, or maybe it's a job that I have, a career that I'm pursuing, and all of these things, and some of them may be noble and good, and I'm seeking Jesus so that he will bless me 
in these areas. Seeking the benefit that he may give instead of seeking him. It can be sometimes difficult. I, I have said to many of my friends, I don't think I have ever had a pure motive in my whole life, and I don't know that I ever will until I get to heaven. Uh, but we need to be asking the Holy Spirit to be examining our motives, why we are seeking Jesus. What are we hoping for? I don't know if you noticed who the people were that didn't show up to worship Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes, where are they? These are, these are the religious leaders. These are the Bible scholars. They knew where Jesus was going to be born. They didn't have to, re, they didn't have to go study anything. They knew exactly. Ooh, it's right here. Bethlehem. They knew it. They knew the reference. But they don't show up. They claim to be the, they claim to be the leaders of the people who are looking forward to the Messiah, the the, the son of David, the one who will establish the kingdom of God on earth, they say they lead those people, but they don't show up to greet the Messiah when he comes. Now, it could be that they, like Herod, really didn't want a Messiah. They're going through the acts, but life is pretty good. If they're among the core of people that Herod calls for references, if the king calls you and he wants an answer, probably have a pretty good life. Uh, they were doing pretty well for themselves. In years to come, as a group, they would certainly demonstrate that they love their religion far more than they love their God. And perhaps they feared the wrath of Herod. I mean, anyone that hadn't been living under a rock knew that you didn't want to be a rival of Herod, and you certainly didn't want to be a friend of a rival of Herod. Herod was killing people all the time. That's like his hobby. If he thought you were a threat, you were gone. And the last thing you wanted to do was to be out there looking for a rival to King Herod. So maybe they're just looking out for their own health. They didn't want to be on Herod's hit list. Maybe it was an unacceptable offense that foreigners would claim to know something they didn't about the Messiah. I mean, after all, they're the religious experts. They're the leaders. If God was going to bring a Messiah, they'd tell, him, they'd tell them first, right? He wouldn't be often somewhere else among all the dirty Gentiles telling them the Messiah was born. I can't accept that. Sometimes when people are different than us, we are very hesitant to accept wisdom from them. Maybe they just had plans that couldn't be changed. We don't know. We have absolutely no reason. We simply know what they were, we simply don't know what they were thinking, but we do know what they weren't thinking about. They weren't thinking about seeking God. They were indifferent. And perhaps in our own day, indifference is a greater barrier to faith than hostility. People are just busy. People are just busy. Can't be bothered with trying to sort God out. And even as believers, we can certainly grow accustomed to Jesus and the Bible and all this good stuff, and we can lose the wonder and the awe. We can have too much going, in, going on in our lives. We just don't have time to seek him in the places he tells us he will be found. Where does he tell us he will be found? In his word. He tells us he'll be, he'll be found by us when we spend time in his word, when we spend time in prayer, when we come together in worship as a body, when we humbly obey him. In all of these areas, he will make himself known if we aren't simply too distracted. I tell you, I am quite convicted personally and have much hard work to do to be poor in spirit. So poor in spirit is to live from the heart in essential dependence on God. We haven't unpacked all that that means. We haven't even unpacked all that it means as we've started in the, the, uh, the Beatitudes. I've really just picked up on what I would call the central core of what Jesus means in poor in spirit. And then we looked at where we saw 
the fruit of a heart that is poor in spirit, in the Magi. Those poor in spirit, like the Magi, seek Christ as their life. If we would long for that hunger in our own lives, let's ask for it. Let's ask for it. Oh, God, cause me to hunger for you. Cause me to depend on you just like I depend on my very breath. And even more because that will be for eternity. Jesus in John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. He chose us. And he appointed us to go and bear fruit. He wants us to bear that fruit. That your fruit would remain eternal, lasting fruit. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. He chose us to bear that fruit and he knows that that means we need to have the root. We need to live in essential dependence on him. Ask him for that hunger. Ask him to do that in your life. There's so many things that we pray for that we say, I don't know what his will is, but I hope this is, this is what I hope for. And that's fine. But there are things we know he wants to do. This is one of them. Ask him to do it in your life. Oh, God, change my heart. That out of my heart might flow rivers of living water. That I might be, in this case, poor in spirit. To those who are poor in spirit, those who are poor in spirit fall down in adoration and worship when they find him. Worship that is all of life, all of our wealth, all of our relationships, all of our hopes, all of our plans poured out before him. For one poor in spirit, there was only one essential need, and that is God himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, as I have prepared to speak these words, your spirit has convicted me of how much I need to grow in being poor in spirit. Oh God, how much your work needs to be done in me. And I suspect that my brothers and sisters are thinking the same thing. Father, we long to bear the fruit that brings honor and glory to your name. Would you work in our hearts, shaping us so that we increasingly look like Jesus Christ, poor in spirit, for your glory. Amen.